Good morning. Good morning. Hope you are doing well. David mentioned um, our team, our one team that's uh, Pastor Bob's ministry that our church has taken part of. Uh, begins Friday for the St. Louis Project from Friday to next Friday. Our students will be a part of it and some other adults are joining as well. And it's going to be a good week, so be praying for them. And at the end of our service, uh, we'll be commissioning those who are going that are in this service. Pastor Roger will be up here uh, to do that. But um, before we do that, we're going to study some more in the book of James. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, open your Bibles up to James chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> we have been walking through the book of James this summer, uh, doing it as a tag team, as Roger likes to call it, a tag team preaching. Uh, in the front of your bulletin, you'll see the, the rest of the schedule of how we're going to finish out uh, the book of James through the book of July. Uh, the book of James through the month of July. Earlier in the first service, I, I told everyone to open their Bibles up to July, which that's not in, not in my Bible. <clears throat> so, But we've been walking through this, talking about a, a faith that works, how we see godly faith uh, in everyday life. Like a godly faith is used in everyday life, right? And James is speaking uh, to, a, to the early church, to a mostly uh, Jewish background a group uh, who've come out of Judaism in to follow Christ, um, and he's speaking to them, and he's dealing with some of the same things that we deal with today, right? Last week we talked about the tongue, we've talked about these different things that were going on in the, uh, that James is talking about in the early church, and really it is extremely practical for us today here in the year 2019, right? I mean, we are still dealing with those things, and when we get to James chapter 4, it is definitely something that we see um, in the church today, uh, especially in the United States. And when James gets to this part of his letter, I'll just be honest with you, he's tough. Uh, he comes out punching in James chapter 4. Um, but fortunately, when we get to around verse 10, uh, you'll see the promise of God's great grace. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about a faith that submits. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4, or you can follow along on the screen with me. We're going to read the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 4. It says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Do they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here's the punch, right? Everyone loves to be called this at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, right? You adulterous people. That's what you came to church to hear, right? Someone stand up and say, you bunch of adulterers, right? James is calling the early church that. Um, and he's doing that very severe. Uh, to come and follow it up with the severity of God's grace that we'll see. But he says in verse 4, <clears throat> You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that Scripture says, The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. Or some of your translations may say, Jealousy. Verse 6. But he gives greater grace. There it is. Right? He punched, and now he's given us 
the balm for our heart. He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, sinners. Purify, right? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's a heavy passage of scripture. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we come to you this morning needing you. We are very reliant upon you this morning as a group of people. Uh, I stand before this group of people completely reliant on your spirit and your word to do its work, God. Not my words, but your words. We need, I need your spirit. I stand in a group of people, Lord, who need your spirit to hear the words. We need your spirit to take your word, to ingrain it into our heart, and sometimes cut. And then to encourage and to call us in your power that comes through your spirit and your spirit alone to obey you and to live the life that you have called us to do. And so God, we need you to be with us this morning. So we ask that you would fill this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Did you um, have a friend growing up who always got you in trouble? How many had a friend that always got them in trouble? How many was the friend who got their friends in trouble? That's what I thought. <clears throat> I, I had one of those friends. Uh, I lived uh, kind of in the, I lived in the country, but on a major road uh, in the country, a major road from Bullinger County. Um, and on that road, there was this bridge that went over this little stream. And it was my friend's idea for us to go down there while we were playing, and to make mud balls when I was, I was little, and then to crawl out from the bridge and as cars came by, to chuck them at cars. My dad did not believe that it was only my friend's fault for that, right? When he took his belt and made me realize that throwing things at moving cars or any car was not a good idea, right? We've probably all had a friend that's talked us into something that we didn't want to do, or oh, we were the friend who did that. This morning, James is talking about friendship, two, various, two very different types of friends. Um, most of you are probably on Facebook by now, right? There's probably a few of you are holding out, and if you're under like 21, you're like, I refuse to get on Facebook because my parents are on Facebook. I'll do Snapchat, Right? Um, but those of us who have Facebook, we've logged on, got onto the app, or we've got onto our computer, and we've had those little notifications that say, so-and-so is requesting to be your friend. Right? You've seen this? This morning, you have two friend requests, James tells us. You have the, you have the world requesting to be your friend and God. And what James says is that when you choose to accept one as your friend, you immediately are denying the request to the other. And if you deny the one, then you are accepting the other. You cannot have both of them in relationship in your life. And so James is telling us that to be a friend of the world is to make you an enemy of God. And so let's define what he's talking about. What does he mean by this word? Because it's important. Because we'll see this word throughout Scripture, and in different times it means different things. For James chapter 4, what 
James is talking about is this humanistic system that is at odds with God. He's not talking about the physical creation that he created and he declared it good. And he's definitely not talking about the people who live in this world whom he said that he loves so much that he sent his begotten son to die for them. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this humanistic system that is at odds with God. Here's what I mean that gets at odds with God. When we sin, sometimes we kind of throw it off as like, oh, I just messed up. Oh, that was just a mess up. Oh, I sinned today. Not before God. That's not how he sees it. He sees sin as outright rebellion against him. Since the first sin, humanity, mankind, has been in rebellion to him. That rebellion is as if we are at war with God. We are at outright, we have declared war on the sovereign king and creator of the universe. And as a result of that rebellion, there is a system that scripture refers to as the world that's at work. work. It's in us, and it's among us, and it's a system that's at odds with God. And this is the system when James says, do not be a friend of this world, or he tells us to not be of it, that, he's re- that Scripture is talking about. That we are to not be of it, yet we're to love the people who are caught up and enslaved in the system. Don't be of it, but be in it loving people. There's this missionary tension that happens. But you cannot be in a relationship with, as a friend. The word friendship there in James chapter 4 speaks of deep intimacy. You cannot have deep in- intimacy with the world and with God. It's just not possible. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the, and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. And so James is talking to a group of people who he calls adulterers because the, he's saying you've had a love affair with another God. And it's the, the world. And you are double-minded, thinking that you can have friendship with the world and friendship with God and it not affect you. And so James tells us three things that is affected by these people. This early church, this was the early church, and it reads like it was today, the things they were dealing with, right? And we're dealing with it today, and here's the three things that was the result of their riddliness causing them to sin. There was conflict with others. They were fighting each other. There was conflict with themselves. And then they find out that they are actually in conflict with God. They had worldly passions that sought worldly pleasures. And the world will encourage you to want things that you don't need. Things that God says we don't need, right? It will encourage you to want more stuff. It will tell you, you'll never have enough. It will tell you to prioritize your comforts, to ignore the poor, and to please your flesh, right? It will tell you, you don't ha- you'll never have enough money. You'll, have, you'll never have the newest car, the, the biggest house, There will never be more luxuries. It'll tell you to choose your comforts over your convictions, right? To choose your preference over sacrifice. It'll tell you don't worry about those people who don't have instead of what Scripture tells us that we have been blessed to be a blessing. And it'll tell you to feed all of those fleshly pleasures of sexual sin and pride and choosing your reputation as you trod down the marginalized. And this 
it will absolutely create conflict with other people. That was what was going on in the church. There was conflict. They were all trying to get more than the other person. It was creating jealousy and envy among themselves, right? Uh, I have a little dog. Uh, she is a miniature Australian shepherd. She's 24 pounds, right? She's about two years old, and she's just the cutest thing. I should have brought a picture because then I would have got to hear you all go, Oh, she's so cute, right? She's got one brown eye, one blue eye. She's just a little baby. She's just the cutest thing. She's, per- she's the perfect dog. Um, and then, but when I'm gone, I have to take her over to a friend's house that lovingly watches her. But let's just be real. They have a devil dog, a toy poodle. Now, the toy poodle's great if my dog's not there. And I could give this dog, that little toy poodle, this dog bone. And it would want nothing to do with it. Could care less. But if I have my dog over and I give my dog the bone, that little poodle will growl and try to get that bone from my dog. Wants it. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't ever like these things, but wants it, right? That's what James is talking about to the church. He's like, you guys are like a bunch of dogs fighting over stuff you don't even want. You only want it because you see that they have it. Right, we've all seen little kids do this, right? A little kid be in a room and have the toy and could care less about the toy. Then another little kid comes in and gets the toy and they're like, ah, that's mine, I want that. That's not fair, that was mine before it was theirs. I want that. That's, that's what James is telling, telling us that they're doing. They didn't want what the other person had until they saw the other person with it. And then they saw people maybe doing things that they thought that they had read in Scripture that you're not supposed to do, and they thought, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And, and it tells us, James says, it causes to the point of murder. And I was reading different scholars. There's a differences of opinion here, which kind of threw me. Some scholars say that the early church, there was actually murders in it because people were killing each other to get something that the other person had. Other scholars will say, no, What James is talking about is what Jesus said, that when you have anger and hatred in your heart towards person, you are committing murder. I don't know. I'm not a scholar, and I wasn't there in the first century, so I don't know. But what I do know is the fact that James uses the word murder. He's saying that when we desire things, and we're in relationship with the world, and we want what the world has, we get to the place of wanting something so bad that other people have that it's murderous, and it's severe. Not only that, James says that their passions were at war with each other. There was conflict inside of them, right? This is what Paul is referring to in Galatians when he says, For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. And inside of us, there is something that will fight us if we feed it, right? There is something the flesh wants what the flesh wants. And if we align ourselves in intimacy with the world, the flesh will desire and there will be a war inside of us. They're so motivated, James is telling us, by earthly pleasure that some of them aren't even praying anymore. They have just totally rejected what God, the great giver, has for them. 
They no longer need the blessings of God. They choose the blessings of the world. He says, you have not because you ask not. They're not even praying. And then those who are praying are not even asking with the right motives. Man, let me tell you, your prayer life, it reveals a lot about you, doesn't it? It will reveal if God is just a means to the end or if he is the end unto himself. Because some of us are guilty instead of saying his will be done, his name be honored, we say let my will be done, let my name be honored. Have you ever just sat and just evaluated your prayer life? What are you spending your time asking for? James tells them that ultimately this friendship with the world not only causes conflicts among themselves in the church and conflicts inside of themselves, but conflict with God. In verse 4, he outright calls them an adulterous people. And he tells them at the end, you are the enemy of God. Those are two scary phrases. Two things that I would never want to be called. Man, I, I struggled with this passage of Scripture. Like, I've, for two weeks, I've been looking at this passage of Scripture going, how, how do I preach this passage of Scripture? James doesn't pull any punches here. And then it stuck me. Adulterous people. I just would never want to be called an adulterer from God. But the beauty of this passage of Scripture is it's so strong and so serious because God is so serious about forgiving. And he's trying to call, James is trying to call the church back. And that's what he's trying to call us today. This, the word adulterer, James is pick, taking the picture of the Old Testament relationship that God had with his people. Where he ref, would refer to it as a marriage. And what would happen is the more that his people would look like the world, the more they would betray their relationship with God. And he wanted them to realize the pain and heartbreak that he experienced over that. When we live for what's best for us, we are in essence and in reality running around on our God who saved us, who died for us, who loves us. And we are playing the adulterer. As this goes on to call it, he says that his spirit is envious greatly or is jealous for us. This is not a jealousy of sin on God's part. What, we're, what James is trying to convey is what the Old Testament would convey is the fierce love of God, the strong emotion that he has for you, the righteous emotion that he has for you. He is jealous for the affections of your heart. He is jealous for you, not of you. He's not jealous of what you have or what you're doing or who you're with. He's jealous for you because he has what's best for you. No man in this room with moral fiber who is a husband would share his wife with another woman or with another man. And neither does God. He expects exclusive devotion from his bride. And when she goes after other lovers, the term jealousy speaks to that ferocious and furious and fierce love that he has. Because God's, God's love is not, insecure, is not like some insecure employer who fears that his employee will get lured away by a better salary elsewhere, and he's jealous. 
God's jealousy is not the reflex of a weakness or a fear on his behalf. Instead, our God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privilege of a wife and a queen. And his jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation and having his honor and his power and his mercy scored by the faithfulness of a fickle spouse. That's what James is saying when he says he's jealous for you. This morning, if you are a believer, you have been bought with a price. Like Hosea, who's bought that, his wife who kept going out and out and out on him. You've been bought with a price, and he is jealous for you. When you hear that word, I want you to hear his fierce love. His fierce love. That's how much he loves us. And so he wants us to have this friendship with him, this relationship. That's the word, relationship that comes from him. And this comes from his gracious desires. And this is where we need to see God's grace. See God's grace this morning. Yes, God is jealous for you and says you're an adulterer if you are friends with the world. But he also says this, he gives greater grace. Are you thankful for greater grace this morning? I know I am. There's been times in my life where I've been, I I have gone and I have played that part and I have sinned and I have forsaken him. And here's what I've found. More grace. Greater grace. Greater grace, right? We will never find the bottom of God's grace. It's like the little boy who's at the ocean, and he takes his little sand bucket, and he keeps dipping the water out of the ocean and throwing it into the sand, and he keeps running back and getting more water and throwing it in the sand, and the mom says, honey, what are you doing? And he says, mommy, I'm going to drain the ocean dry. You will never drain the grace of God dry, because it's greater grace. It's more grace. It's more grace than your sin. It's greater grace then you're running out on him. But he's calling you back to him. And he uses the word submit, right? He says, therefore, in verse 7, submit to God. Now, submit is not a word that we like using. I've very seldom said submit. I don't go up to Brett and say, Brett, submit to me. He'd punch me in the mouth. He's like that. But what God, what James is talking about is this submit that includes the word humility, right? He says he gives grace to the humble. This is a person who lays down their rights before God. It's a person who is the opposite of the person who is proud, who says, God, you just stay there, and I'll call on you when I need you. I'm going to live my life how I want, and then when I get it all screwed up, I'll ask you to come fix it for me. It's humility. It's also surrender. It's I'm going to stop fighting against you, God. I'm going to yield to you in obedience, ultimately. And so James says this. He says he gives greater grace because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, isn't that rosy? 
But there's the promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we have a choice. Friendship with the world, or friendship with God. So what does it look like to be in this daily relationship with him? He gives us five commands to obey, to grow in intimacy, relationship with God. They're right there in the passage. See, that's ultimately what we want to do, right? We want to be growing daily in our walk with him. That's what a disciple is. It's someone who is obeying the commands of God as they follow Jesus in daily relationship. Here's the first one that he tells us, resist the devil. And this one's important. And you're going to need this this week because I'm going to need this this week. How do you resist the devil? Do we just go, I resist you. Resist. That's not it. It's not the picture he's doing. We resist the devil when we stop believing his lies and we believe the truth of God. When we see Jesus being tempted, right? It was a lie every time. When Eve is in the garden and Adam is there with her, they are lied to. When Jesus overcame the devil, how did he overcome the lies? With scripture, right? We resist the lies. We we resist the devil by resisting the lies. We stop believing the lie and we believe the truth of scripture. But we do more than just believe, right? Jesus obeyed the truth. He didn't just quote scripture, this knowledge. He obeyed the scripture. We fight the lie with truth. We obey the truth even when we don't understand because we trust the truth giver. When you're tempted this week, don't believe the lie. Believe the truth. Obey the truth. Trust the truth giver. I want to give you two things that you need to believe. Two truths that you need. They're in who God is in his trinity and who you are in your identity. He's a father and he's good. You need this this week. You need to know that your father is good. And I get, sometimes when we talk about God being a father, that's hard for some of us in this room. Because you did not have the best relationship with your earthly father. In fact, some of you had a horrible relationship with your earthly father. You still do. Some of you don't even know who your earthly dad is. That's hard. I don't understand that. I can never be in your shoes. My, I, my dad died when I was 11. I had a great relationship with him. And so for all of my life, from now till I die, I will always have him held up high in steam. But if you're struggling with that, here's what I want you to realize. He is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. And he's good. He's always good. And he always has what's best for you at his heart. Jesus said, what kind of father, when you would ask him for bread, would give you a snake? Right? Because he's a good father. And when we want to follow the lie of the devil who says, does, the, does God really have what's best for you? He's holding out on you. Adam, Eve, he knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. He's holding out on you. 
Come on. Everyone else is doing it. And they're getting away with it. You can do that. No one cares what you do in the privacy of your own home. No one will know. God is holding out on you. Just do it. No. I will fight that lie with truth. My God is a father who is good. And he will only hold things out for me. Keep me away from things because he has the best intention at his heart. Not only that, when I refute, when I'm like, I don't know, are you good? It's hard to see God. He is Jesus, the son, and he is king. And whether it seems like he's doing good or it seems like he's having bad on me because it doesn't feel good right now, I will say he's the king and I have sworn allegiance to him and I will not break that oath of allegiance to him because he's my king and I don't have the right anymore. I'm not on the throne. He's on the throne, devil. I will not submit to you. And beyond that, he's the Holy Spirit and he is holy. And his spirit lives inside of me. And he's making me holy. And where I go, his spirit goes. And I will not bring his spirit into this sin and into this worldliness. I will pursue his spirit, his holiness. See, the truth of who God is will keep you from the lies of the devil. And more than that, the truth of who you are, your identity, will do it. Look at this. This is just a taste from Ephesians chapter 1 of who you are. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are a saint. This morning, if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, I know you don't feel like it, but you're a saint. And you are an adopted son or an adopted daughter. And you know the beautiful thing of adoption is there's no surprise adoptions, right? You're chosen. You might have been a surprise baby, right? Like, you've done the math from your brothers. You're like, I am 15 years younger than my oldest brother. I was a surprise. But there's no surprise adoptions. You were chosen son or chosen daughter. You've been redeemed. And you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it goes on, and the list goes on and on and on. Some of you, tomorrow morning, need to remind yourself of this. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and the devil's going to be right there. And he's going to tell you, you don't have it. You don't have enough. You've already screwed up. So why don't you just keep doing this? And you need to look that devil in the eye and you just say, listen, I am chosen. I am holy. I am blameless. He has called me a saint. He has adopted me as his son or as his daughter. I am redeemed and I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I resist you. Some of you need to look yourself in the mirror. You are lying to yourself. You need to look in the mirror and remind yourself before you leave for work or school, or no, it's not school in the summer, or work or whatever you're going to do tomorrow, right? And you need to remind yourself in the mirror and say, I am chosen by the king. I am holy because he, is, he who has called me is holy. I am blameless because of his blood. I am a saint because he calls me a saint. I am an adopted son, an adopted daughter. I have been redeemed by his cross and his sacrifice as lamb. And I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to live like who I am. That's what we've got to do. We've got to resist the devil with truth. Because he lies and he says you're a sinner. He says you're a failure. He says you're not good enough. So just keep doing what you've been doing. It doesn't matter. 
No one cares. And God's in heaven saying, I am jealous for your love. I have called you. I have given up my son for you. And you have been, I have chosen you. And remember who you are. First one is resist the devil. The second one is seek God in repentance. He says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. When we do sin, and we've bought into that lie, and we are far away from God, he wants us to, comp- to give it up and to turn from it and reject it and come near to him. And he is standing there like the prodigal's father with an arms open wide, ready to embrace us and to draw us near to him. It speaks of repentance. It also speaks of worship, to draw near to God, to lay our entire life down. Worship is not just a moment in our life. It's not just 15, 20 minutes on a Sunday. It's our entire life given to him as sacrifice. We seek God in repentance and we pursue purity. He says, wash your hands. Right? Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Right? What he's saying is we need to cleanse the inside and the outside of the cup. And we need to pursue purity to the place that we do not give any fleeting f- chance for the flesh. And for some of us, that means we've got to reject some good things in our life that cause us to sin. When I'm in a room full of students, sometimes I'll have them hold up their phones. And I'll just be honest with them and tell them, you don't probably need that for some of you. You have way too much access with that thing. You can be in the quiet of your home with no one in the room and it's leading you into sin. And you need to make no provision for the flesh, and you need to get rid of it. Or only have it when your parents know you have it. The reality is there's some of us in this room who are adults who need to make no provision for the flesh. Some of us need to stop doing that. We need to stop going different places. There's some good things in our life that we just need to pursue purity to a place that we will not even allow the chance to stumble. Pursue purity and then be serious over sin. Verse 9. Verse 9 is tough. It's, it's almost despair, he, it sounds like. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, man. Thanks, James. But what he's telling us is to be serious over sin. See, I don't know about you, but I discovered something about me one time. That I was allowing little sin in my life. Because I called it acceptable sins. Like somehow there was some acceptable sins. You know, I wasn't doing those bad things. But these things, you know, someone cut me off. It was okay to honk and yell at them. It was okay to just gossip a little bit or to inflate a story just a little bit. Those are acceptable sins, right? How dare 
I ever call anything acceptable because the God in heaven is looking down on me and saying, your little sin, your acceptable sin still caused me to give up my son on the cross for you. Your sin still sent Jesus to the death on a cross to die for you. There is no acceptable sin. And what James is saying is we've got to start taking sin serious again. We have gotten complacent with sin in our life. We've gotten complacent with sin in our church. And what James is saying is we've got to draw a circle around us and not anyone else and say, there will be, I will take every sin in my life serious. He's echoing the words from Joel chapter 2 that says now, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts and not just your clothes and return to the Lord your God. He says, be serious about sin because he follows it up with this. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. See, God wants us to be serious about sin in our life because he's very serious about forgiving you of that sin. And giving you the grace to empower you to overcome that sin through his spirit. Several years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his book about revival. He said, go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God and how terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Dear church, this is a message of hope and love I said James punches us, but he doesn't punch us with the adultery words or the jealousy words. He punches us with the greater grace. That's the punch. That's the punch to me. Because how can God continue to love me? I don't know about you. I know me. And I know my sin. And I know the times that I've walked out on God. And he's called me back. And he says, trust me. Because when you humble yourself, I will exalt you. I will raise you up from the sin. So when's the last time that you have grieved greatly over sin in your life. That's what James wants us to do because he wants us to walk out not with mourning, not with weeping, but with laughter and joy from having our sin cleansed. Because I've discovered that there is nothing like a clear conscience and a forgiven soul. There's nothing more freeing than to know that you are right with the living God. Will you stand and close your eyes?
I'm going to ask you, is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Is there something that you need to turn away from? Something that has caused you to ally and to be in relationship and a friendship with the world. And as a result of that, God calls you an enemy. It's crazy. These are believers. And, right now, and what James is saying is they, God has to treat them like an enemy to get them to come back to him. And he's calling us back to him this morning. Right there at your, where you're standing, you can cry out to him and receive forgiveness. That's the beauty of God, of his great grace, guys. I don't want you walking out here going, man, he stepped on my toes, or that was tough, or that was hard. And I don't want you walking out here telling me how great of a sermon that was or how convicting that was. I want you walking out of here going, I am free. I'm free of my sin, and I have joy in my heart because my sins have been atoned for. I am right with God. And you can walk every day in that power. Every day. Every day of your life you can have that joy and freedom. Guys, I'll just be honest. Sometimes we enjoy convicting sermons. There's an emotion that happens and we feel like that's enough. But that's not what he's calling us to. Not just conviction, he's calling us to receive grace. And we do that through repentance. Right there where you're at, or maybe you feel like you need to come to this altar, there's nothing special about the altar, nothing magical about that, but sometimes there is something about physically getting on my knees before God that echoes what spiritually I'm doing in my heart. And so if that's you this morning, you can come right now. You don't have to wait. not going to sing at this moment, so you can just come. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have never trusted in him as your savior. You've never surrendered your life to him as king. You can do that today. I'll be in the back of the room. Roger's here. Brett's here. You can come right now. I'd love to share that with you. Maybe this morning, God's calling you to baptism or joining church, whatever God's calling you to do, would you just respond to him in obedience, not to get his love, but because you've already been loved, and you see your obedience as love back to him, so whatever he's calling you to do, just take a moment and do business with him. that calls us to repentance. And God, I'm astounded that you were so merciful to me. 
is so gracious to me. That you still have more grace for me for the rest of my life. And I, God, I, I, I haven't used it all up yet. Like, it just astounds me. This morning, Lord, would you just impress that on the hearts of anyone that's here, that there's no one who's too far from you. No one's used up their grace. But what you're calling them to do is to take it serious so that you can seriously forgive them. And God, may your grace be the motive of our heart to love you. Not some legalism, not some motivation so that we look good or some reputation, but just simply, we are astounded by your grace. And so we follow you. And it's through your cross and your love that we have that grace. And it's through the name of the one who died on that cross that we ask these things in the name of Jesus.